This is Give Me Some Truth, a podcast from Walkner Condon Financial Advisors in Madison, Wisconsin. Give Me Some Truth is dedicated to providing an accessible and authentic view into the financial services industry, as well as current events and investment concepts that you can apply in your day-to-day life. You gotta leave your money behind you. Raise your hand. Welcome back to Give Me Some Truth. Today we have a unique guest because uh, we're going to talk about a lot of fun stuff. His name is Israel Lopez. He has started an app from scratch, and he's got a very interesting and varied background as well. So, uh, Israel, thanks for joining us. It's good to be here. Good to be here. And I wanted to start out first with a bit about your story and how you got to where you are today. So can you give us a little background on that? Yeah, so um, you know, I played college football in undergrad. I got a football scholarship from Milwaukee, uh, and really that football scholarship allowed me to uh, change my life in many ways. It got me out of a pretty tough scenario uh, in Milwaukee, and from there, uh, I got a scholarship to UW Madison Law School. Um, and from there, uh, so I started my first tech company actually while I was in law school. So I got this entrepreneurial itch then, uh, and then it's been uh, you know four or five businesses later, I got a couple of successful tech companies going right now, including Politiscope. And uh, to get where I am, I spent you know six years uh, at a couple of different law firms developing the skill set. So I took the mentality uh, early on of uh, building my mind, right? Building my skill set before taking, you know, taking the leap and betting on myself. So I wanted to build the skill set, understand the tech game, understand the legal side, understand how to raise investment capital, market to market, um, and had a lot of experience on the M&A and security side of things before I felt really comfortable and say, all right, you know, we can do this. Uh, yeah. And now we've raised, you know, over the last four years between the companies that either I own or advise have raised over $5 million in investment capital. Um, cool that we're doing this today. I'm actually closing on 1.9 million in one of the companies uh, that I'm advising, all Chinese investment, but we're closing on that today. So congratulations. Cool yeah, yeah. Thank you. Wow. What a great, great story there. And as far as um, your law background, how did that help you to kind of prepare you for all the private equity that, sh- uh, you know, the money raising and everything that you do today? Yeah. So it's twofold. First, uh, I had a couple of really good mentors. You know, the approach that I took in getting at law firms was, look, I'm going to find the person who knows the most about securities and knows the most about M&A, and I'm going to pick his or her brain as much as I possibly can. Uh, having to do my minion work on the side and, you know, get the task of being a low-level associate at a law firm, uh, but, but gaining the skill set uh, as much as I can. And then the second piece is I've worked with a lot of tech companies, rep- represented a lot of startup tech companies, a lot of startup companies in general. And what I really got to see was all the mistakes that they made. Like just, you get, you know, you get as, as their attorney, you get to see the in-depth of a lot. Uh, and like I said, mostly mistakes, ways that they weren't set up the right way. Uh, and then you see what companies raise investment capital, what companies don't, why, why not? Um, what companies take their capital and use it the right way and what companies don't, uh, how they get to successive rounds. Uh, so getting that kind of that backend insight uh, really, really, really helped. So is there a certain personality trait um, of a particular person that's very skilled at at uh, raising money that you see? Is, or is there a certain uh, success story that you'd like to share as far as uh, how somebody really became a very successful entrepreneur? Um, well, I'll generalize it. Uh, I don't get, get too specific. Sure. But I think the, the, the key is first... Um, and then again, this is just in the, the tech sector. So I think you got to have tech experience first. You've got to have, um, 
you know, whether that's as a developer or whether that's as someone who has previously started tech companies and maybe exited one or worked for a tech company, right, and gained a lot of insight into that world. Um, I see a lot of, uh, you know, early stage, idea stage uh, startup founders that they have a really, really great idea. But then I say, well, how are you going to make that go? You know, how are you going to develop the system? What code base are you going to use? How are you going to create a system that can potentially be acquired in two to six years? Uh, they have no idea, right? And they don't have that tech background. So if you're going to be in tech, put in the time to understand what t technology is first. So um, I think that people who have done that have had the most success. Um, that's shifting a bit because technology is now becoming more accessible. Uh, so you can have founders that aren't technical founders that can subsequently find a co-founder who is that technical co-founder. Uh, and for those type of individuals, what I found is just you got to be able to sell. You know, so you're either really, really, you know, really, really great on the tech side of things or you're able to sell and build a team. That's what I've seen uh, in terms of the personality traits that have the most success raising capital. And what's the biggest uh, drawback? Is it is it ego? That's really something that's that hurts the founders or is it uh, lack of business planning or what do you see? Operations. OK. Number one thing. I think that the biggest lacking trait that I see amongst other uh, tech founders is that they don't have an operations mind, meaning they don't look at the company that they're starting and think of it in a way of, okay, here are the different departments of this business, even though this department really doesn't exist yet or this department doesn't exist yet, but we're going to plan for it and we're going to break things down. That way we raise an angel round. Now we're going to make some hires. This person's going to be in that department. Here's the system. Here's the three principles of this system that we've implemented. And you keep everyone on a cohesive plan. Everyone on your team, whether it's five people or 10 people, know what they're working for every single day. Um, and I think a lot of co-founders just, or a lot of founders in general, just they don't have that mindset. They have the mindset of, we have a really, really cool product. We have a really, really great idea. I'm gonna get out there, I'm gonna sell, I'm gonna raise, I'm gonna raise some money and the business is gonna take care of itself once we raise that capital. Uh, and it doesn't work that way, so. <laughs> One thing that I'd like to uh, have you explain a bit uh, to the listeners is you hear a lot of these different rounds and you know, can you just explain a little bit from round to round how this all occurs in the general way that an exit happens then? Uh, because I think that a lot of people hear Angel and we hear Series A and all this stuff and we don't know what it necessarily means. So you, can you kind of demystify that for us? Yeah. Um, and I'll de de demystify it in, in my way because what you'll see is actually you can go to the East Coast and you can talk about an Angel round and you can go to West Coast and talk about an Angel round and you're talking about two different things. So what I consider an angel round is your friends and family round. This is idea stage. This is probably pre-revenue. Uh, this is raising maybe 50K, maybe up to 500K. Um, but typically a round that you're going to use the capital to show proof of concept. You're trying to show that the problem that you're looking to solve is being solved by the product that you develop. So using this capital to develop that product, generate some traction. From there, you get to your seed round. So what I see a lot of companies do, if you're in the B2C type market, developing a mobile app like we are with Politoscope, you probably will have to raise that friends and family round before you even develop the product, right? So you're developing the product using that friends and family round to then subsequently get traction and then raising that seed round. If you're because you have to pay developers that aren't going to work for free. Exactly. And, and to uh, translate B2C as business to consumer, yep. right? So. Yep. Um, if you're in the SaaS world, so software as a service or device world, uh, it's a little bit different. Uh, what I've seen there is that a lot of companies can start bootstrapped. Uh, most SaaS companies, the founders there are coming from a bigger company. They found a problem. They've created this solution by technology. Um, and there, 
you can get some traction without raising investment capital. Most of the time, you do need to get some traction in the, in the, the, the SaaS or device world to even raise any capital. Um, and sometimes you can kind of skip that angel round, that friends and family, and you can say, okay, we have 200K in revenue. Now we're going to raise a, a seed round. And to think of it that way is the most uniform way. So your angel world is proof of concept. Once you've shown your proof of concept and have some traction, then you're going to get to a seed round. Uh, and that seed round can consist of super angels, bigger angels. Typically, you start to get into where you're pitching to funds, right? Angel C level funds. Um, and they want to see traction. Once you get there, then you'll raise your Series A, Series B, Series C. But what's important to understand is that there's a few different ways you can raise each one of these rounds. You can do a price round, which is an equity round. You're essentially exchanging cash for stock. Or you can do a convertible note round, which is a convertible security. You can do a safe round, which is a safe is similar to a warrant. Again, it's a convertible security. So each time you're raising, you got to think about the market you're in, the type of product that you have, what ultimate valuation do you want to be at, uh, and that valuation ultimate valuation correlated to when you want to exit um, and figure out what's the best strategy for you. For us, our first round, actually, we did a price round. We wanted to price the company right away because the idea, then from there we got, you know, we, we, we currently have a, a convertible note round open because we don't want to put a price on the company right now. We're going to raise a couple million, get our traction, and then that could bridge us into uh, a Series A, a priced Series A, potentially, if we want to. Yeah. So when you're raising money and you've got to raise, say, you're raising $2 million, I mean, what is that going into? I mean, is that going into developmental salaries or is that actually uh, acquiring consumers then? Yeah. Again, it depends on the company. Mm -hmm. For us, the goal for us is to get as many users as we possibly can because we're an ad data play company, um, generating revenue in, in a few different ways, but ultimately it's ad space and data. And you can't uh, uh, generate any revenue from that unless you're at scale with your user base. Uh, for us, scale is we want to get to a million active users. Um, you know, typically you can start selling ad space at like 50,000 active users. Um, if you have a good system set up or a, a, a good DMP, third party or sales team that you're working with. But for us, we want to get to a million active users. So when we're raising capital, we're pitching it and we're saying, here are the seven, eight, ten different ways that we're going to uh, implement in order to get to scale. And here's what it's going to cost. So we need to raise the money. We need to hire a, you know, a data engineer. We're going to put three to $400,000 into paid user acquisition. Uh, we're partnering with a few different networks. So it's different company to company. Um, for us, focus is getting users. So the money that you're bringing in should be all correlated to getting users. And just like you've done over the course of your entire life, you never want to make things easy for yourself because you're, <laughs> you're doing one of the hardest things there is to go B2C. It's, it's my understanding. Difficult. It's very difficult and the success rate is very low. Right. However, you've had a, a lot of success with uh, your app, and I want to spend a moment talking about that. Um, the app is Politoscope. It's you know, and I'm I'm a daily user of the app myself, and that's why I really wanted to bring Israel in because I, I think this app is is fascinating uh, to me, particularly because uh, they're solving a problem that I think exists right now, and that is that we have so much divisiveness uh, across our p political spectrum, and the goal. Uh, of this app, and I don't want to put your words in your mouth, Israel, but the goal of the app is really to, to give you other viewpoints uh, and be able to see all sides of a bill or of an of uh, you know an idea that comes up, and you can 
try to do a, you could try to look at the problem from different angles rather than just look at it at the lens of, of a Fox News or an MSNBC, you know, whether you're on the right or the left. Right, right. What we're trying to do is provide, uh, bring transparency to politics, uh, bring transparency, objectivity, uh, and efficiency to politics. So when you open up the app, uh, you can get objective media. You know, we aggregate from 130 different media sources, uh, funnel it through our system, and it doesn't appear on the app if it's not factual, if it's not statistical. Um, that said, you know, we're, we're, we're nonpartisan. So we want users from both ends of the spectrum. We want users from everywhere. Um, and, and the focus is to give our country, give the, give the citizens in this country just a tool to be able to participate in democracy. I think right now we're in the age of information, right? You can look up anything and everything, just about anything. You can Google it. But when it comes to politics, it's like the more research you do, the more Googling you do right now, the more confused you're going to get. Um, Whether it be because of things like fake news or the fact that media is just so pay-per-clicky, meaning, you know, the media is tailored in a way where it's just trying to get people to click on the the article so it's not focused on just being factual. It's saying, oh, Trump is being a crazy buffoon and this, you know, and and it's like, no, how about we just talk about what's actually going on in terms of the legislation, in terms of what uh, our government is working on. So when it comes time for our, our country to vote, Oh, okay. This is what we're voting for. This is who we're voting for. Um, and that's what we're trying to bring. So. What I like about the app, too, is that you can go in and you can take a look at actual legislation. So they'll give some bill in Congress that's coming in, and then they'll give the the take on the left and the take on the right and the kind of centrist take um, on each piece of legislation. Then you get kind of a thumbs up, thumbs down on it, and you can see where people stand. And it's very interesting when you look through the spectrum there is that you guys have obviously a lot of users on both sides because when you go into each bill, it's not that all the Republicans or all the Democrats have 98% likes on every single one of these bills. So I think it's a great way to look at what's coming up legislatively because ultimately that's going to dictate, uh, you know, a lot of our, of our laws in the future. And if you're not making yourself aware of what's going on. People can say a lot of things, but if you can't actually see the legislation, um, you know, and read through it, uh, you know, it, a lot of it's just window dressing. They're just talking, you know, and it's not actually driving any policy and you can see what actual policy is being driven. And you can also see that occasionally Congress does actually agree on certain things and some bills get passed. So it's amazing that we do actually see some bipartisanship every once in a while. Mm -hmm. And that doesn't get talked about or reported on because that's not very sexy. Right. But I, I think your app does a great job in doing all of that. And, and then you also get notifications about, um, you know, real important uh, news over time. And I don't find it to be the same news that everybody else gets because it seems like if you're getting push notifications from CNN or Fox News or what have you, it's all uh, it's all very pay-per-click type of stuff. You know, mm-hmm. it's very clickbaity where this is not the case here. Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. And I think, uh, like, you, know, you can register to vote through the app. Uh, you can donate to campaigns through the app as well, so you can follow the different uh, elections that are going on, uh, see the different legislators that are campaigning in that particular election, see how much capital they've raised up to this point, uh, and then see a short bio uh, on them, donate, um, or the incumbent legislators. You know, we built out player profiles, uh, which uh, which really come from my co-founder, who's an NFL alum. Um, you know, he he designed the app in many ways, so it's it's you know just about every way. So he's he's has a very very creative mind, and for him to uh, to make the transfer from NFL athlete to you know tech founder and entrepreneur, and actually design an application and an application that's we're doing really well. You know, our our 
DAU-MAU ratio, which for any listeners that are looking to start a, a mobile application, get familiar with a DAU-MAU ratio, uh, which is essentially gauging the stickiness of your app. Um, investors, I want always want to know, well, okay, how many downloads are there? What's the um, um, uh, and what's the the DAU-MAU ratio? How sticky are they? Are they using the app a lot? And ours is currently at twenty nine point four percent, which is really good. The gold standard is ten percent. So, for for a, a first iteration uh, app to have that high of a DAU is, is, is great for us. So that's daily active users and monthly active users? Or? Yeah, so it's, okay. a, it's a ratio that you, uh, it's a little algorithm or uh, equation that you use to come up with that percent. Um, and it usually correlates pretty closely to what your, if you just take the number of users and then divide that by the number of active users that you have to get a percentage there, it usually is pretty close. If it's close, it means that you're doing math right. Um, so our, our DAU-MAU ratio is 29.4%. Um, our daily active users, the percent of daily active users is 29.3%. So. so what that's basically saying is that if the gold standard is 10%, that means that you need to add a whole bunch more users and actually drive that number down in an odd way, get more users. Uh, you'd love it if it would stay at 30%, but y- you know, you got to have to get a whole bunch more users in there. Mm-hmm. Your number will probably come down, but if the average is 10 and you're well above that, that's great. Right, right. Yeah, yeah that's the goal. So the ultimate goal, I mean, for you, looking at it as an entrepreneur, your goal is exit at some point. Mm-hmm. Um, but as far as kind of the societal good that the app provides, um, you know, can you go through a bit about kind of why you designed it as such? Yeah. Well, I'll tell you this. In 2016, 80% of the millennial generation didn't vote, right? Now, history tells us that ultimately that generation, this generation, is going to get to like 50-50, each generation, 50% of the genera- uh, that generation votes, the other 50 doesn't. So we know that that number is going to go down. Um, but what we found is that legislators campaign, they have no idea how that number is going to go down. They don't know how to target millennials. They don't know how to get to millennials. So that was the main reason why we developed Politiscope. So obviously there's the, the media side and protect, uh, providing objective information. Uh, but in terms of reaching the millennial generation and subsequently the Gen Z's generation, putting political information in a, in a format that is friendly for them. Um, you know, we take a lot of features from other social media apps uh, and iteration 2.0 is going to be implementing a, a lot more movement, a lot, a lot cooler things to hopefully counteract and keep that percentage. We were just talking about hopefully give it around 30, but you're right, it'll, it'll drop. Um, but yeah, the reason why we started is because we know that there's a huge need. Um, there's a huge need for information amongst millennials, uh, amongst U.S. citizens in general. There's a huge need, but our niche target uh, market is is the millennial generation. So we created it for that. That's why we have the micro donating platform uh, implemented into the application, knowing that if millennials are going to donate to campaigns, it needs to be in that that crowdfunding form. They've been trained; their mind has been trained that way. So five, ten, fifteen, up to two hundred dollar uh, donations. And this year, you know, Q1, start of Q2, <laughs> legislators are setting all time, like, like historic records in terms of how much capital they've raised through that micro-donating platform. So millennials are okay with dropping $5, 10 $15. Uh, and if there's a lot of them, well, then it works. Um, so we know that there's a shift in terms of um, political campaigning, a shift that started in 2006, actually, with, with Obama in terms of leveraging social media um, and leveraging it in a way where you don't really have to focus on facts. You don't have to focus on actual information. You just need to focus on getting impressions. Um, and Obama started that. And then I think Trump's campaign took it to the next level. Uh, and now we're kind of, I think, in the final stage of that because now users are becoming more educated and they're getting fed up with all the fakeness, right? So there's going to be a shift, I think, probably after the 
after the 2022 midterms. It's, it's going to stick around here for 2020. 2022 is going to be just as crazy. Uh, and then I think there's going to be a shift and we're going to be at the forefront of that shift. And that's really interesting. I, I think that uh, I love the mark micro donation part of it too. Uh, I think that, you know, just personally, I feel that campaign finance reform is way overdue. And I think that this is a great way for people to become more active, um, you know, as they put money towards candidates that they really believe in. And I think that the biggest flaw right now that we have in politics is that the party line, uh, it, it, everyone just kind of seems to have to fall in line with the party line and no one can deviate from that. And, you know, you saw it a lot. You know, it's kind of a microcosm here in Wisconsin with Scott Walker, who really, you know, fell in line with the Republican Party line through and through and moved completely lockstep through that. And I think that hurt him when he ran for president and things like that, because if you're just running party line, you can't stand aside as your own person. Mm-hmm. And I think that, uh, you know, people supporting other candidates here uh, is a big positive in being able to give donations in a small format quickly, easily crowdfunded like you're talking about is ideal for a lot of these people because then they also don't have to bend the knee to as many uh, corporations um, and then get really beholden to certain interest groups. You know, the interest groups are really, you know, this is just me putting it on a soapbox, they're (laughs) kind of destroying (laughs) politics, you know, and uh, I think it it makes people uh, turn away from positions that they normally would have, um, you know, otherwise because they have to toe the party line and, you know, they're not going to get this big donation to be able to keep their campaign going if they don't, you know, vote a certain way. Mm Mm-hmm. Um, so back to a little bit more about the funding. How do you knock on doors and get those doors open to investors? Yeah. <laughs> um, boots on the ground. You know, I, I think that's the best way to put it. I think it's a, a combination of um, you having a lot of grit and understanding that uh, raising investment capital is like the worst. It's like a nightmare version of speed dating. So you're going to go on, you're going to go on, you know, 200 dates over the next 12 months um, and every single one of them is going to like look at you like you're crazy and say no uh, but that 201st date you just got 300k right and then the 202nd date is going to be no and then the 240th you got a million you know so um, you have to have that mindset uh, and, and understand that you have to stay neutral so I know a lot of initial startup founders like they get their first pitch they get really hyped up. And they're like, man, I'm going to close this. I'm going to close this. I'm going to get, you know, and then it doesn't happen. Then they get let down. So they end up going up and down, up and down. You got to stay neutral through every single pitch and understand that, look, this is about numbers. This is about business. Go in there, pitch your business, understand the game, um, and play it. So having that mindset really in order to get the pitches set up is, again, boots on the ground, um, doing your research. There's, I mean, it's a day and age of information. So Google, find every single fund that you can possibly find. Find, every, find all the angel groups that you can possibly find. Uh, go on all the websites. See which ones uh, are angel or seed stage or whatever stage your company is in. Um, type of investments. And then look at their portfolio and see what their investment strategy is. If it looks like, like for us, if these uh, if investment fund is looking at media, uh, data, you know, B2C, mobile applications, that's right in our wheelhouse. It's sweet. We categorize them as level one. We're going to try and reach them. Um, and then it comes down to, to networking. So, and I think that's probably the most difficult thing. I think accelerators were created because most tech founders just didn't have a vast network. So accelerators were created where it's like, Hey, we'll take 6% of your company and we're going to essentially broker investment pitches for you. Um, luckily for me, because of my experience, uh, and really because of the founding team that we have, 
uh, for Politoscope has been very different. We've had investment pitches all over the country to really, really big name investors. Um, Gary Vaynerchuk is leading our next uh, investment round, so he's he's a big name. We just met with Bon and Bo yesterday, and actually our second investment meeting. So hearing back from him, but. Some big name guys. I mean, pitched to Reggie Bush two weeks ago. We were at the NFL draft. So it's very different when you have one of your co-founders who's an NFL alum. Um, and we have a few uh, NFL players on our cap table that have invested. Uh, so very, very different game than my previous experience with my other tech companies or what I've seen for companies uh, from companies that I've, I've represented um, where we've, we've, we've kind of got a foot in the door. It's a little bit easier for listeners. Um, you know, maybe the accelerator route is, is the best route for you if you're just not a great networker. Um, but, but it's networking, going to events, finding out where investors are going to be, shaking hands, uh, and then following up and understanding the process of following up. I know millennials aren't good at that. So many millennials listening, like understand, like email, follow up, like channel your inner eighties, um, or early nineties and like, like understand that communication is key and that an investor isn't going to hear about your business today and invest next week. He or she's going to hear about your business today and invest in six months or a year or maybe even two years. Um, so it's about building that relationship. Uh, and in many ways, uh, as a startup founder, you, you have to call your shot and then you gotta do it. You know, So you gotta meet an investor and say, hey, look, we're at this stage right now. This is where we're gonna be in five months. I'll keep you in the loop. And then in five months, you shoot them a, follow, a, 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 a update email and say, hey, I told you, you know, this is exactly what we were going to do. Let's have a follow-up meeting and let's talk about it. Ah, it's still a little bit too early for us. You know, Maybe if you get to here, okay, we'll do it. You hit them back up in three months, hey, we did it. Um, and eventually they'll invest. So that's, that's how it goes, and it's a grind. It's an absolute grind. So if you have significant others, make sure they're prepared for it. If you have kids, if you have family, uh, make sure everyone understands that, hey, I'm trying to raise investment capital right now, and this is what it's going to take. Um, I might go a little bit crazy sometimes. I might be completely stressed out. I might be exhausted. Um, but at the end of the day, hopefully you're living your dreams so you're able to, you know, compensate any of the difficulties, but just make sure the people around you know what you're going through. And from a psyche standpoint, I mean, how do you deal? You're talking about rejection <laughs> uh, and you're talking about rejection so consistently uh, and over a long period of time. So how to mentally, how do you channel that uh, into positive into positivity and how do you, how do you end up taking all that rejection? Yeah. Um, for me, I think it comes to that last point that I just made in that I mean, I'm 31 right now. 16 years ago, I was homeless, you know? So I lived in my car for a time period in high school, and uh, I've always had a chip on my shoulder saying that I was going to do, and I was going to become a lawyer, and I was going to do this, and I was going to do that, and now I'm doing it. So um, for me, like I said, I have the mindset of understanding the game and understanding that it just might not be a good fit for most investors because that's how it, that's how it rolls. That's how the cookie crumbles. Um, so I'm able to stay positive through it all because I remind myself every single day, I'm, I'm literally living my dream. Um, I'm a dude that came from a rough neighborhood. Like I said, I've been on my own since I was, uh, since I was 15 years old. Uh, and now, you know, I've raised over 5 million in investment capital. Uh, I have three tech companies that are doing really well. Uh, and yeah, and it, and it's awesome. So I get to fall back on that for other founders that, you know, don't have that, what I call adversity training that, that I have, um, <laughs> You just got to You got to You got to stay even keel. You got to take great pride in staying even keel through it all. Um, and that's me just giving advice because I wasn't at first. When I first got into investment capital uh, or fundraising, um, I was that guy that was super hype. When I got my first fund pitch, I was like, well, I'm going to close this deal. Like, this is what I've been waiting for. You know, this is great. 
you know, 200 pitches later, I still hadn't raised a dollar. So, um, you know, and you kind of have to go, I had to go through that grind, but that's what I say. Stay even keel and understand that this is just the game that you're playing. And it's the same for everyone. Um, really no matter what you look like now, it's a little bit more difficult for minorities in, in many ways. Absolutely. Absolutely is. And I won't get too in depth into that conversation, but you also have to understand that I have, I mean, I have a really good friend who has an awesome company. They're at series a stage, really, really brilliant individual, a white guy. And he should have raised capital right away. It took him 200 and I think 230 pitches before he raised his first dollar, you wow. know, and, uh, and now the company's killing it. Uh, so just understand that that's what it takes. Well, I think a lot of these guys um, that are the heads of the companies may have a great idea and they might be a great developer, but they're not, like as you alluded to earlier, they're not good on the sales side or <laughs> the networking side, you mm-hmm. know? And you can be great at one facet of the business, but it's really hard to be good at four or five different facets of the business. And when you're bootstrapping it, mm-hmm. you have to try to wear all those hats at once sometimes. And mm-hmm. I, I can't imagine how difficult that is, mm-hmm. you know? I started my company, but fortunately, a lot of people can say yes to us because we're not asking people for huge investments, you know, uh, like you guys are. You have a different sort of deal, and they're talking about high-risk investments, too, Mm -hmm. where somebody could literally lose all their money. And the chance of them losing all their money is is probably... I don't know. I would say it's greater than 50% in most cases. It's like 80 to 90% in the seed stage. Yeah. It really is. So, but if you make it big, (laughs) yeah, if you go public someday, you're doing all right for yourself. You could be the next Uber, you know? Well, uh, thank you very much for taking the time. I could spend probably two hours talking to Israel here. And uh, (laughs) it's just a wonderful story. So if that didn't motivate you, I don't know what will. Uh, But thank you very much for joining us. And hopefully we'll grab you on another uh, installment one of these days. I'd love to talk to you when you've raised even more money and maybe even after your exit. So congratulations for all your success. And uh, thanks for joining us. Thank you. Thank you. Advisory services are offered through Walkner Condon Financial Advisors, LLC, an SEC-registered investment advisor. Clint Walkner, Nate Condon, Jonathan Jordan, Mitch DeWitt, and Keith Ponywaz are investment advisor representatives of Walkner Condon. Guests on the podcast are not registered, and their participation in the podcast are limited to unregistered activities and will not provide any advice that is investment-related, nor should any comments that guests make be construed as giving investment advice. Content should not be viewed as an offer to buy or sell any securities mentioned or as legal or tax advice. You should always consult an attorney or tax professional regarding your specific legal or tax situation. Walkner Condon Financial Advisors, LLC, is not engaged in the practice of law. Whenever you invest, you are at risk of loss of principal as the market does fluctuate. Past performance is not indicative of future results. Purchases are subject to suitability. This requires a review of an investor's objective, risk tolerance, and time horizon. Investing always involves risk and possible loss of capital. Long-term care, estate planning, insurance products, and tax advice are not offered through Walkner Condon Financial Advisors, LLC. Walkner Condon works on a best efforts basis and does not guarantee any results. Past performance does not represent future results. Please see walknercondon.com for additional disclosures.